Volume 1, Chapter 18 of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, a novel by Anna Cora Mollett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 18 That a young maid's wits should be as mortal as an old man's life. Hamlet Better I would distract, so I would my thoughts be severed from my griefs, and my woes by strong indignation lose the memory of themselves. King Lear From the same to the same. Charleston, October the 1st. Your letter, your kind, love-inspired letter, lies before me. I have reread every line, and every expression of friendship is garnered up in my heart. I must write to you, you say. My silence have deprived you of the principal joys of your calm existence, you tell me. That last appeal is all-sufficient. I will resume my goose quill, and if it can waft you one pleasant breeze to ruffle the quiet stream of your life, its toil shall be as endless as that of Sisyphus. You will learn from the date of this letter that we are now in Charleston. We passed the summer very delightfully at the Virginian Springs. We shall, however, be obliged to relinquish our projected tour through the southern states. Mr. Elwell, a few days since, received a letter which will compel him to return to New York to complete some unexpected business arrangements. We shall probably leave Charleston in a couple of weeks. Amy's health is almost entirely restored, but she is constitutionally feeble, and a breath disturbs the delicate fine organization of her system. A most lovable being is this Amy Elwell. She has what one might call an agreeable presence. There is a quiet goodness about her, a depth in her very stillness, a nobleness and purity of purpose which pervades every act of her life. Her goodness seems to be innate and hereditary, and she has few or no evil passions against which she is forced to struggle. Yet faultless is her character, and endearing in her manners as she is, I cannot entertain for her the ardent love which I bear Evelyn and Ellen. It would seem as though their very failings made them dear. I can only account for this strange fact by supposing that my imperfect nature permits me to have more sympathy with those who err. Evelyn no longer writes to me, although I receive a letter from Ellen every few weeks. They are both well, and, as far as I can ascertain, happy. Amy and I met with a singular adventure yesterday which, though it cannot amuse, must interest you. At an early hour in the morning, we left our hotel to take a promenade and acquaint ourselves with the city. We had walked some distance and were near the outskirts of the town when we encountered a troop of men and boys, many of them colored, laughing and shouting as they advanced towards us. We could not at first perceive the object of their merriment. 
but as they drew nearer, we beheld in the midst of them a young girl who was wildly tossing about in her arms, shaking her clenched fist first at one, then at the another of the crowd. In stature, she was considerably below the usual height, but her form was most symmetrically portioned. Her dress was disordered, her dark hair floated about her face and half bare shoulders. Her large eyes started wildly about, and Amy and I, at a single glance, concluded that she was deranged. The instant her eyes rested upon us, she rushed towards Amy and rudely seized her arm. Amy turned pale but did not struggle. The girl retained her hold, gazed in Amy's face, and then shrieked out, "'You are a woman, and your lot must be suffering, wrong, ruin, woe, despair. You are a woman, and you must be spurned, hated, forsaken. You are a woman, and you must, you only can pity.' Amy remained motionless, but the unfortunate creature no longer grasped her arm. She was standing quietly before her, and earnestly and abstractedly scanning her features. The crowd appeared awestruck, for not a murmur was heard. At length the girl heaved a deep sigh, and pressing her hand to her bosom, exclaimed in a milder and sorrowful tone, No, no, the fire that rages here cannot burn in your breast. It cannot scorch you as it consumes me. No, no, you are too calm, too pure. You are not like me. She turned from us and darted away. The crowd by which she had been before pursued instantly followed her. I observed an old man, who was more deliberately taking the same road as the others, and, walking up to him, inquired, Can you tell me who she is and where she lives? Well, I don't exactly know, was his reply. I believe her father lives in that old house where you see her going in. I reckon she's crazy, and I shouldn't wonder if she was no better than she should be. Amy and I, both involuntarily and in silence, took our way to the dilapidated dwelling, which the old man had pointed out. The girls had disappeared into the house. Several of the foremost men followed her, but quickly returned again with horror depicted upon their countenances. Amy and I passed through the midst of the crowd, walked uninterruptedly into the house, and opened the first door to which we came. The room was devoid of furniture, except an empty bedstead, the floor uncarpeted and even unsanded. At the furthest end of the apartment, two chairs supported a rough coffin. Beside that coffin knelt the young girl. With noiseless steps but throbbing hearts, we approached her. The coffin contained the corpse of an old man wrapped in a coarse shroud. The pale cheek of the girl was pressed against the ghastlier one of the corpse and her dark tresses mingled with the thin blanched locks that waved about the old man's brow. 
his glossy half-open eyes seemed to look sorrowfully into ours there were tears upon his cold cheeks they were the tears of the hopeless mourner the kneeling girl caught his lifeless hand within her own and stretched her arm towards heaven murmured in frantic accents speak speak one word father and curse him with me speak and pray god to curse your child's destroyer and your murderer in her excitement she dropped the lifeless arm and it fell with a dull heavy sound back into the coffin that sound seemed to arouse her she started up shrieking he cannot speak he does not hear me he is dead 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 quite dead again she knelt with her clasped hands and supplicating eyes raised to heaven father she cried hear the vow uttered beside thy senseless corpse i will devote my life to vengeance i will haunt the fiend who has robbed us both i will pursue him to the tomb and beyond if there be a beyond he shall be more miserable even than he has rendered us o oh god as thou art merciful thou art just grant me one prayer make me the instrument of thy sure vengeance her head sank again upon her father's bosom and it would have wrung your heart to heard her sobs i ventured to approach and lightly touch her shoulder she sprang to her feet and shrieked out no no i tell you i am not mad i wish i were i cannot forget my griefs in madness i am too wretched to be mad she spoke truly for her frenzy was the frenzy of grief and her reason was not impaired of what illness did your father die questioned i at a loss what to say of a canker in the heart of the gnawing serpent's tooth of an ungrateful child i killed him pray be calm returned i we desire to be your friends she repeated the word friends and laughed scornfully then with increased violence said i have had a friend before now a brave friend i will seek him out that he may be forced to remember his old friendship will you be such a friend as he was if you will permit us we will be your true friends the poor girl looked at us shook her head mournfully and replied you do not know me you do not know what i am you pity me i am unworthy even of your pity that cannot be said amy now for the first time addressing her you have apparently no home will you not come with us and share ours i cannot leave him replied the girl pointing to the corpse but to-morrow he must be taken from you said amy at these words the poor mourner grew frantic again they shall not she cried who shall dare to touch him they shall break my arms before they unclasp them from about him i have been parted from him once i came back to see him die but i will never leave him again they shall bury me with him we spent some time in attempting to persuade her to accompany us home at first she replied in the wild manner which i have already described 
then exhausted by the violence of her emotions she sank again upon her knees beside the corpse and only answered our entreaties by a vacant stare and even more expressionless smile i suggested to amy that we could do nothing further until the mistress of the house could be found and amy overcoming her usual timidity instantly went in search of her amy's absence appeared to me in my present excited state so protracted that i was on the point of seeking her when she made her appearance she was accompanied by a fat old woman with a round doe-like face the expression of which might have bespoken considerable asperity of character if that were consistent with such a superabundant quantity of en bon pot we could not converse with perfect freedom before the young girl i therefore beckoned to the woman to follow me into the entry are you well acquainted with that young girl inquired i after closing the door not particularly nor i don't want much acquaintance with the like of her was the tart answer her father boarded with you did he not yes can you give me any information concerning him observing that the woman looked indisposed to submit to this cross-questioning i added you will very much oblige me if you can and you will not yourself be a loser the probable prospect of again unloosed her tongue i'll tell you all i know about him and very willingly she began he was an old frenchman i believe and came to live with me about a year ago he never worked at any trade i know of and seemed to be as poor as a rat but he paid his board regular he was very silent and sad and sometimes sat the whole day in his own room without even stirring nobody knew what he was about his health failed him from the first i think and got worse every day about a month ago he took to his bed and i saw right off that he wasn't long for this world and he said himself that his time was come just a week before he died one day i heard a great noise in his room and went in to see what was the matter and who should i find standing beside his bed but the girl inside there she was screaming and crying and taking on at a great rate but the old man was lying so quiet in his bed and looked so pale that i thought he was dead but the life was in him yet for he opened his eyes but never spoke a word from that day to this the girl has never left him for a whole hour she said she was his daughter but i never saw her before i reckon it's a little out of her right mind she was for she don't seem to eat nor to sleep and she's always muttering and talking to herself i never heard the old man say much from the day that she came to nurse him i believe that he died in the night for yesterday morning i found her lying on the bed beside him with her arms about his neck and he as cold as a stone my husband carried her out of the room and locked her up while we laid the old man in his coffin as decent as might be and then we were obliged to let her see him again for her shrieks frightened all the neighbors sometimes she runs through the streets tearing about like a mad woman and threatening everybody she meets 
Then she comes back here and cries and talks as though anybody would understand her. Who pays the expenses of the funeral? I ask. The woman colored and stammered out. Why, why, you see, the old Frenchman had one or two chairs and some old clothes not worth a dollar and a few odd things, and, and my husband, he sold them to get money for the funeral. And when is he to be buried? This afternoon. And what is to become of the daughter? If she can pay her board, she's welcome to stay, and if she can't, she must go about her business. Do you think that she has any means of paying? I shouldn't wonder if she hadn't, and she don't seem to have the wit to look after herself. What are we to do? I said, turning to Amy, for I was quite perplexed. We must take her home with us as soon as her father is buried, and if she has no friends, we can take her back to New York. My father will be very willing to pay all her expenses for the sake of gratifying me. Of that I am certain, replied I. We will take her to New York, and if she can find work at any trade, I will find her employment. If not, perhaps you can engage her as a femme de chambre. But we already have a very excellent girl with whom mother would be unwilling to part. Then I myself must appropriate her until such a time as I can procure her other employment. I told the woman that we were interested in the girl and would take her home with us after the funeral. We then took our leave, promising to return in the afternoon, and assuring the woman that we would compensate her well if she kept an eye upon the girl and saw that she did no violence to herself. We left without again entering the room. In the afternoon we returned in a carriage. The hearse, a most forlorn and dilapidated-looking affair, was already standing at the door. We entered and found two men in the act of screwing the lid over the coffin. The young girl was vehemently struggling in the arms of a third. I spare you a recital of the frightful scene which ensued. It was too terrible, too harrowing, and the very recollection of it freezes the blood in my veins. At the last, the coffin was borne from the room, and the dismal hearse soon rolled from the door, unfollowed by a single mourner. In half an hour more, the desolate creature was seated by my side in the carriage. Mr. and Mrs. Elwell, who may be numbered amongst the most kind-hearted people in creation, anxiously awaited us at the hotel. When we arrived, our companion followed us unresistingly, and without seeming to notice what was taking place around her. Mrs. Elwell administered a cordial to her, and she was undressed and laid in a comfortable bed. Amy insisted on sleeping in the same room. She told me this morning that she did not believe the wretched girl slumbered one hour through the night, although she laid perfectly quiet, but with her eyes wide open. This morning she no longer weeps, but her quietude is that of despair. She scarcely eats and never speaks, except when questioned. Her face and lips are perfectly bloodless, and her large black eyes 
wander anxiously about in search of some object never found. Amy summons me, and I must bid you adieu. Afternoon. I found Amy trying to pacify our unfortunate charge, who was seized with a fresh proxism of grief and could scarcely be prevented from rushing out of the house. I sat down beside her, and she soon grew quiet again. I thought this a favorable moment for conversation, and asked, Have you any friends in Charleston? She shook her head in answer. Would you like to accompany us to the north? She looked up and exclaimed, To the north? Yes, yes, I will go. It is there I want to go. We are going to New York, I continued. Will you accompany us? Willingly, gladly. It is there I wish to go. Have you friends there? To this question she did not reply, but her eyes grew strangely fierce, and her face, which had been flushed by excitement, regained its former pallor. Have you been accustomed to work with your needle? inquired I. No. Did you ever live at service? No. You are very young. You cannot be more than eighteen. No. And, and your father was able to maintain you? She caught my hand convulsively in her own. Do not speak of him. Never, never mention his name or you will set me mad again. I will do anything you please. I will serve you, work for you, but do not mention my, my... The word father could find no utterance. One more question I must ask you, returned I. You will tell me your name? Call me by what name you please. Give me a name. But let me forget the one I have. We will call you Blanche said Amy. It is a French name, and would therefore suit you. Do you like it? The girl bowed her head, and this was sufficient answer. She appeared uneasy and ill, and thought it best not to continue our conversation. We left her to regain her composure, hoping that the hour would come when her peace of mind might be entirely restored. She has been unfortunate perhaps guilty, but to discard her would be to force her to the commission of further crime. How many plunge into a vortex of vice from which they would willingly but cannot withdraw, because every woe a tear may claim, except an erring sister's shame. October 5th. Mr. Elwell has announced to us that we are to sail for New York in the packet which leaves day after tomorrow. We are all so busy making the necessary arrangements that I can write to you but a few lines. My next letter, if heaven permits us to accomplish our journey in safety, will be dated from New York. Blanche continues very calm but silent, sorrowful, and smileless. I cannot help longing to become acquainted with her history, but time will disclose all that it is good for us to know. End of chapter 18